Hi, I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of Humanitu, a podcast that empowers connection through conversations of humanness and creativity. Today, I'm talking with Lucas Crump. He is CEO and co-founder of Everyman, a social enterprise that is cultivating a global community for men, and it's helping men to connect with each other and to then hone their emotional skills together. Lucas, of course, is going to tell us more about that, and he'll also share why he does not really appreciate the phrase toxic masculinity. We'll also talk about what every man is and a little bit of what it isn't. We're also going to get into Lucas's personal story, his personal journey from growing up in Kansas and learning largely to support himself at a very young age in a house that had, uh, it sounds like, more than its share of turmoil, and on into a decade of pursuits around the world throughout his 20s. It's years spent running from his own emotional pain until what Lucas describes as an emotional volcanic eruption within that landed him momentarily at the precipice of suicide and ultimately in a psychiatric ward in Singapore. In this conversation, Lucas shines light on overall wellness, community, service to others, and how his personal and professional work in these spaces has brought him to a more peaceful, if still imperfect, place of love and relationship at this point on his continuing journey. Here is my conversation with Lucas Crump. Lucas, thanks for being here. Welcome to Humanitu. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited to chat. It is great to talk with you. You're CEO and co-founder of Everyman, and I've been following Everyman for a couple of years now, but I'd like for you to tell everybody what it's about, what your work is. Yeah, Everyman is um, a men's wellness organization. We focus on providing tools, resources, and community for uh, to support men's uh, mental and emotional health. I think the way that we go about doing that is non-traditional. And, um, you know, I don't mean to say non-traditional in a, in a negative sense, but really looking at what do, what do men need specific to their own being to be able to support their mental, emotional, and physical health. And you know, we focus on providing, as I mentioned, the tools and resources and the community um, for men to be able to do that. You know, there is a lot of national media uh, recognition of the work that you're doing. You know, just to give people and you know some examples and, and what this scope is, we're talking about the New York Times, which might have been one of the early times where I read about Every Man, but also magazines like GQ, Men's Health. Uh, participation on Joe Rogan's podcast, which is one of, if not the most popular in the world right now, I think, on the Today Show. There's been tons of huge uh, media recognition. And what I've noticed in a lot of those articles, though, is that a very common word, I'm wondering if it's kind of a shorthand description, is to refer to what you're doing as uh, having to do with masculinity, maybe mm -hmm. because of the toxic masculinity thing of recent years, that phrase. But I know that, you know, that word is not even in every man's mission statement. And you have suggested that it really doesn't say enough of what this is about. So I'd love for you to, uh, you know, describe what it is that every man is about more fully beyond masculinity and the way that that kind of gets abbreviated uh, in the media sometimes. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, it's it's people often ask about the media and and how that came to be, and 
you know, for us, it's been really humbling. We've never gone out and solicited the media to come to us. You know, I think our work and more importantly, the efficacy and the benefits of our work, you know, stands on its own right and, and is what has brought the attention to us, which is, which is really humbling. I was actually, a, a friend of mine just sent me a message and Joe Rogan was, was talking about, you know, every man last week on, on his podcast. So, it, you know, it was, it's just, it's powerful to see that and to feel that, you know, back to your question. I, I think, you know, I think it, it's interesting, like, we are at a precipice at this point of, you know, our our culture, our society demanding or asking for men to be different. And part of the reason why we're at this point is that there's been a void of, you know, organizations that, you know, address the issues that men face specifically. And so I think our focus on men at this important moment is one of the reasons that, you know, obviously the media and everything else has been been drawn to wanting to have this conversation with us. To your point around masculinity, I struggle and I and I don't I don't appreciate the word toxic masculinity. I think that that's a uh, a term that has been created to define or or you know, a set of behaviors that we culturally have labeled good or bad and I don't necessarily agree with those I don't necessarily disagree with those labels but we have to look at why do those behaviors even exist in the first place what are the larger social constructs that have that have enabled or allowed for those behaviors to exist you know and so do you wrong somebody i mean the, the very the, the the word toxic masculinity has a negative connotation to it right and so um do you wrong a, a young man for behaving a certain way if he didn't have the right, um, you know, childhood or role models or teachings in his own life to be able to demonstrate what we've now deemed, you know, uh, correct masculinity? I, I don't, I don't quite know. I don't, I don't even know what that term is. So it, I think it's an interesting question when we dig deeper into that. At the same time, the very idea of masculinity um, in every man being a organization that provides some sort of definition or prescribed way of being a man is absolutely unequivocally wrong. That is not what every man exists to do. And it would be very arrogant if we felt like as an organization that we had the authority to define what masculinity is for any one man. The 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 only requirement to participate in in an everyman program or our weekly groups or whatever it is is that you as a person identify as a male we then give you a, a space and a construct in a way to discover your own definition of masculinity that works for you um, because we don't believe that there we don't believe that there is one definition of that you know there is a fluidity in our masculinity that that needs to be brought out right the the old stoic cowboy that clearly doesn't work there's way more room for who we can be as people and we want men to be able to just be able to discover that and embrace that and celebrate that um because that's that's what's going to get them closer to who they who they really are 
and if you get your your foundation solid, you can really you know you can grow from there. And I think that that's what's very important to men um, in this day and age. Absolutely. And you mentioned the idea of how we're brought up, these social constructs, you know that obviously has factored into these these sorts of conditionings of what we are taught as boys. This is what it means to be a boy, to be a man, to be tough, not to cry, all those sorts of things. And if we just bring this into where it's specific to your experience, not asking you to have those sorts of uh, perspectives or answers for all of us or even any of us beyond yourself, I'd like to go back to where your personal journey with these things, uh, this process to this emotional self-accepting place within yourself that I think you've come a long way to based on what I'm aware of in your story. And you grew up in Kansas, and that's where I'd like to go back now to where you grew up, to what was surrounding you, the the role models, maybe that's your dad, maybe it's other uh, social uh, constructs around you at the time, and just what were you seeing then, and as we start this journey, what influenced you, leading you to where you are today? That's a great question, and um, it's funny, I was writing an essay on this very same sort of question earlier uh, over over the weekend for for an organization because it's it's June is men's mental health month so I, I wanted to uh, they asked me to tell my experience with that um, you know growing up in Kansas um, I uh, you know I think I had two two very clear definitions of, of a role model or masculinity one was my biological father um, and the other was my grandfather. And unfortunately, my biological father was bipolar. And that condition, for, for anybody out there that knows, the bipolar illness, you know, causes individuals to become manic, right? So they could, their, their mood is dramatic from, from one place to another. And, and, you know, with my father, it was extreme anger or glimpses of joy, um, and so, you know, and unfortunately that, that illness dramatically impacted my upbringing, my father, my parents divorced at a young age. There's a lot of, a lot of anger. There was a lot of violence. There was a lot of abuse. There was a lot of turmoil in my, in my house growing up. And unfortunately, because of the fact that I didn't feel safe around my father, the, the traditional relationship that I would, that a, that a boy would have with his father that that relationship was fractured, so I never felt safe with my father. Um, who I did feel safe with was my grandfather. My grandfather um, was a uh, family doctor for sixty five years, um, and to me, demonstrated the type of you know he he was. He was he was he was unequivocally masculine, but there were definitely moments when I saw him cry, and there were definitely moments when there was a real rigor around an emphasis of values and behaviors which were acceptable and not acceptable, you know. And I think I I held I, I think as a young boy looking for guidance. I actually gravitated towards that. You know, there's one part of you as you know, I can think of it as a teenager. Like one part of me as a teenager, you want to run the other way, but deeper down, you actually know 
you actually know that that that's good for you. And I sort of sat in the middle there. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, unfortunately, and my father's past, and I've, I've come to peace with this, but unfortunately, my father demonstrated to me a lot of the ways you should not be as a man, um, you know, and although that's sad and painful, you know, I can actually honor him by being the man that I am today, as, as difficult as that is. <laughs> was your grandfather, was that, was that your dad's dad or your mom's dad? That was my, my mom's dad. Do you think that at the time when you were a child and then a teenager that you recognized then in your dad's behavior, what you did not want, what you knew wasn't the thing to be emulated as a boy, as a man? And, or was that really your grandfather that helped counterbalance that and, and helped you kind of keep maybe more centered on, on how you wanted to be as a human being instead of what would have, you know, understandably maybe just meant anger. It's, it's an interesting question. Like I think one, there was inherently things that I just knew no matter what age that were wrong that, you know, I was exposed to at the same time, my grandfather created this incredible juxtaposition, right? He was like this, was like, okay, here's one way of being and here's another, you know, and it was very easy to sort of, it, it, it's almost like I could feel the, the joy and the love and the care in my grandfather. And so I could put together the pieces of, wow, this is how this, this is how this man is. And this is, you know, the, the energy that he, you know, puts out into the world. And then at the same time, you know, I could compare that to my own father and just knew that was something was off. Now my father was bipolar, you know, I'm not giving him a, um, I'm not making that okay, but that will, I, I mean, there were things that he couldn't control, right? You know, and I look at mental health and how far we've come around stigma and science. And I, I actually have, I have a tremendous pain, you know, and have compassion for the struggle that he had as an individual. But yeah, I mean, I think that I, I don't have children myself, but I know that those early years are incredibly malleable and you know, a lot of the events can, that, that occur during our early childhood can, can unequivocally impact us later in life. And, and I know that cause that's, I see that, right. I see that in our work every single day in, in working with men. You would end up going to an all boys Jesuit high school that is in Kansas city. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm actually from Missouri. My family largely is from Kansas city. I'm familiar with the area where you were. Is that where you grew up or was that after your parents divorced and did your mom move with you to that, that area? No, I'm born and raised from Kansas. My, my father actually went to uh, my high school. I went to Rockers high school. And um, after my parents divorced, we were, you know, financially in a difficult position. And my mother, you know, I think it was always assumed that me and my my two brothers would go to to go to this Jesuit school. Obviously, we didn't really know how we were going to pay for that. And very fortunately, the priest at the school gave my mother a job, which allowed myself and my two brothers to to go to uh, Rockers High School. You know, at a reduced cost. That you know that that. I think my mom knew, my mom knew deep down that, that we needed, 
the turmoil that we'd gone through as you know in our in our earlier years there needed to be some calm and there needed to be some direction and you know i found i i look back on those years at that time in in jesuit school and and there was a there was a creed that we you know that was part of our message and you you kind of like as a teenager you don't really you don't really pay notice to those things but as i look back on it now like it's such a part of my being it's called it was called men for others um and this idea that you know we can be of service to as men we have the ability to be of service to other people and that that ability to be of service is I mean, it's one of our greatest powers. It's one, and it's also one of the greatest gifts, and, it, and it's also one of the greatest teachers that we have, you know. And I carry that forward into my work and my life today, because I certainly know that when I am, when I am operating from that place, when I am working and purposeful in being a man for others, I feel better about who I am as an individual. Did you feel like, with your mom being there, was that? something that you just knew was, was kind of a sacrifice for her that she was trying to provide this for her sons. Was it something as a teenager, you were a little bit embarrassed, you know, how did all of that feel in the midst of how it all came to be? Oh, I mean, it, it was, it was both a blessing and a curse, you know, here I am, you know, going to this affluent Jesuit school surrounded by my classmates and my friends who were unequivocally, uh, you know, what we would call upper middle class, um, just sheerly by the, 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 by the cost that it, that, that, that the tuition was. And at the same time, my mother was the lunch lady. Right. And so it was, but I, but I loved having her there because my mom is, just has the most amazing energetic spirit and all of my friends and uh people at school loved my mother she just she just has this simplicity and this beauty to her that you know people are attracted to and so i was very proud of that but at the same time it was also painful to know that you know people knew my story, you know, they knew, they knew my family, they, they could, they, they looked at me in that way. But the sacrifice that my mom made for myself and siblings is it's the greatest gift that she could have ever given me. And it's, you know, I, that to me is, is leadership. And I use that as a guiding point in my own life today. You've also talked about how your mom worked a second job at some point, saving money to be able to take you, your siblings and her together as a family to go to Paris. Mm -hmm. It seems that also would have to have had quite an impact. That's such an act of sacrifice of love. And I'm curious why Paris, you know, if there was something extra special in that you know, I always kind of tell people like growing up in Kansas, all you want to do is leave. But my mom was fortunate to have, you know, when she was younger, had traveled abroad and, you know, had an exchange student. And, you know, my mom, uh, even to this day, my mom just 
all she wants to do is travel and explore and see the world. And so she, she gave me a tremendous sense of adventure that influenced me later in life. When we were in high school, my brother was actually doing a study abroad program in England. And my mom, you know, felt a real desire and want to take us over there and show us the world. It was incredibly important for her. And yeah, for, I, I mean, I think it was almost one or two years, my mom worked a second job to be able to earn the money to take me and my siblings uh, to see my brother in England. And then we we went to Paris and stayed in a youth hostel. And, you know, I, I can remember just sitting on the Champs-Élysées and, and, and just saying, you know, I, I need to come back here. I, you know, like this is, this is something that I want in my life. Yeah. I think the influence of someone around us, again, I, I grew up in the Midwest and I don't recall there being a lot of people around me that were getting out and going all over the world and coming back with these amazing stories that had that influence for me. And it took me a, a little bit longer than you to be able to get out there. And my first trip out of the country, I was 20, 21 late in college, went to Honduras with uh, Habitat for Humanity International, and that had a similar effect on me. I need more of this. Mm -hmm. So after high school, then you went to KU, right? University mm -hmm. of Kansas. And then your first job uh, after college takes you overseas. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> and that would lead to, what, a decade or more of being out there, but not just, it's not like you went back to Paris with a job, right? You went to uh, Africa, went to developing countries and from one to another. And I mean, it really would lead to, I can only imagine how significant of an impact in your life. Can you tell, tell me about that? Like what, what was this work? How did that come together for a kid right out of college? Oh yeah, it was amazing. You know, one of the things that I learned very on, I mean, I can remember like coming home from school and having like a field trip form and, you know, my mom, it, it wasn't like we weren't going to be able to afford to go on the field trip, but it was, a, it was a sacrifice. Like it was felt like it was, you know, um, we, we, we had to, we had to budget for that. You know, I can remember my mom going to my mom's bedroom, my parents were divorced and, and, you know, my mom was a waitress and, you know, she would lay the bills out on the ta on the bed and she would count out the money to, to pay, to pay each of the bills, you know, and it was an interesting dichotomy because my grandparents, um, my grandfather was a doctor and they had, you know, resources and means that come with that type of profession. But my mom, you know, also had a tremendous sense of pride and responsibility. And so, she always was committed to doing whatever she had to do to take care of myself and my siblings. And I, at a very young age, started working and realizing that like, wow, like I, I don't, if I don't like the feeling of being dependent on somebody, and in this case, it was dependent on my mother and feeling like I was a burden at times, like I could go and work. So like that started out busting tables at my grandma's bakery when I was 12 years old that evolved into, you know, you know, shoveling driveways and mowing grass. And eventually, um, myself and my, my younger brother started a landscaping company and, and grew that, that company all through high school. And, and, you know, I, I really, I was attracted to the ability to 
work hard, earn a wage and feel proud of that and, and build something and know that I wasn't beholden to anybody for that. And so that, that company, you know, propelled me through high school and ended up going to college and ran the, ran my, ran my landscaping company all the way through that. And then, you know, after college, I really, you know, I, I was, you know, quote unquote, I can remember get, going for a job interview, like an actual, like, a real job, as I called it, interview after college, and the guy sort of saying, "Hey, you know, you could, um, you know, the starting salary is twenty two thousand dollars a year, you know, and I just graduated college, and you know, blah blah blah, and I'm like twenty two thousand dollars a year, like I'm already making more than that running my landscaping company, so it's like no way in hell I'm going to do that. <laughs> but then I also had to face the fact that if I wanted to continue to run my landscaping company, I was going to have to stay in Kansas and my mother had seeded this, this adventure bug in me and all I wanted to do was go and see the world. And so I was fortunate enough to have an opportunity to go and get a job with a company, a, a Dutch company that, as you mentioned, sent me to Africa and I did some work in the Middle East um, as well as the Caribbean, South America that job and the adventures related to that job are probably an entirely other podcast. So I don't want to go too far down it, but <laughs> at, at 23, I was, yeah, I mean, I was living and working on my own as a consultant in Uganda, you know, in Egypt, in you know parts of Caribbean, you know, and that was just like, just an incredibly eye awakening growth experience for me. Um, and then eventually ended up moving to Bangkok, Thailand and lived in actually lived and worked in Thailand for five years, um, before, um, moving to Singapore where I spent three years and then ended up going to business school and then, uh, moving back to the United States when I was 32. And I've heard you talk about some of those things. I know that. So you were in your twenties at this time, personally, in my twenties, I was a bit wild doing some irresponsible and unhealthy things for a good chunk of all that. I know that you had some adventures when you were out there and living for all these years in these places, especially when we think of a place like Bangkok, there's a lot to get into. Just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you don't have to go there if you don't want, uh, it, I don't care if you do. But however you take this, I'm curious what you had your sights on and what was appealing to you about the experiences that you were having, what was keeping you out there on the road, so to speak, for a decade or more. Yeah. I mean, looking back on it, I mean, I probably didn't know it at the time, but, you know, I was just, I was barely, I was barely surviving. It was a, you know, adventure led me overseas. And there was enough of time out of, you know, it's like I still had friends from high school and sort of college. And, you know, I was the guy that was living and working in Africa. And I just can remember, you know, it was like, wow, the guy that the guy that could barely have, you know, a field trip. And then at high school, you know, his mom was was the lunch lady and I was, you know, mowing lawns when my other when my other friends were you know at the lake or whatever like you know the guy that really a lot of people doubted was now like 
living and working overseas and having this incredible adventure. And so there was a part of like my, you know, kind of look at me now. There was also a part of my desire to really run away from a lot of the the pain and the hurt and the struggle that still still sat with me at home. And there was just my own desire to carve my own path, so to say, and and have my own adventure. And so for a number of years out of, you know, the first couple of years on this sort of overseas adventure, all of those things were, they kind of all balanced, balanced everything out. You know, it's like, okay, the good with the bad, so to say. But at some point, I think it was probably 26, 27, I started to get really homesick. Like I started to get really homesick, like, wow, I'm actually tired of not being around my family, of being alone, of being an outsider, you know, living in Thailand is like, I'm never going to speak your language fluently. Like you're never going to consider me, you know, in Thailand, there's a, there's a word they call farang and it's like a foreigner, like a a white man. And it's like, I'm never going to be here. I'm I'm a minority, you know, and I've, I've reflected on a lot around that experience just in this current moment. And so like I wanted to go home at the same time, I was also somewhat like addicted to this lifestyle and I, I still had something to prove. And so in order to survive, I learned to really just disconnect my head and my heart. I mean, take my pain, take my homesickness and just compartmentalize it and stuff it away. Um, you know, in the way I made that pain you know, numb was self-medicating, you know, alcohol, drugs, women, you know, adventure, anything to kind of take my mind off the, the acute pain of my growing up of, you know, being away from my family, everything. And, you know, I was able to do that for a while, um, until it didn't work and it, it didn't work actually when, um, my, yeah, at 28, my grandmother died. Um, and I can remember telling myself like, you know what, I'm not going to go back to the funeral because it was like, Lucas, when you took this, you know, when you went on, when you decided to move overseas, like you knew this was going to happen and you just need to suck it up. And at that point I, I'd sort of had become so independent that, nobody was really going to tell me what to do. So even though my mother maybe wanted me to come back, she wasn't necessarily telling me that I had to come back. We just didn't have that relationship because from a very young age, I had become independent as a result of my working for myself and you know not necessarily relying on her for so much. And so I just didn't go to the funeral. And then shortly after that, my grandfather died and I didn't go to that funeral. And then a couple of years after that, my father passed away um, and I didn't go to that funeral. And in order to cope and deal with each one of these losses, these events, I just stuffed down the, the pain, the suffering, the hurt more and more until it didn't, didn't work anymore. You know, and uh, that was a pretty profound moment. In, in my life when, uh, when I just realized that like, wow, this way of being doesn't work. When it showed up, when that, uh, 
the word reckoning comes to mind. I can only imagine when, when, and part of this is from my own experience, right? When we are numbing ourselves to these things, when we see the world is hurt, so we try to disconnect. You've described how your grandparents were uh, important in your life, your grandfather in particular, as that male figure that balanced out what you were seeing from your dad, then your dad. And there are, there's got to be a lot of feelings tied up in all that. And you're saying it didn't work. At some point, you you hit a wall. What happened then? What brought that to light where you just could not avoid it anymore? Well, you know, it's interesting. I was I was in um I was in Shanghai, China, in business school, taking a class, a two week class, and my father passed away. My sister sent me a message when that happened, and uh, it was in the evening. And the next day, I just woke up and went to work or went to school. And my classmate, you know, asked me something. I said, "Oh, my dad passed away yesterday." And I can remember this guy looking at me, just being like what the hell? Like, you know, almost like he couldn't believe that I wasn't in a deeper pain. And I'll never forget. I can see it in my, in my mind right now, but I just went out of, you know, I just, I was like, yeah, you know, this is what it is and no problem. Six weeks later, I was back in Singapore and I woke up in the middle of the night. Um, and I've told this story before, but I felt like a volcanic eruption of emotion had just like I felt like my heart had burst. Um, my body was was shaking. My, I was disoriented. I, I just the, the 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 space that I was in was so I want to say painful, but also just so foreign to me, so foreign and scary that. You know, I, I did in that moment think about taking my own life as a way to a- alleviate that crazy position. Thankfully, I didn't. And uh, I walked outside and, you know, got into a taxi and the taxi said, where do you want me to take you? And I said, to the hospital. And he said, what's wrong? I said, I don't know. I got to the hospital. The woman said, you know, what's wrong? I said, I'm lost. And the next day I woke up in a, in a mental hospital. It, it had all kind of just come to uh, come to a head, so to say, um, you know. And it was really time for me to to deal with my shit. Time for me to slow down, to actually connect with that pain, with the sorrow, with with the things that I've experienced, and actually, you know, integrate it into my into my life rather than stuff it down and disassociate from it. At this point, there's a lot of years of it. I mean, you've been overseas for years as an adult, but going back before that, the years with your father, the years of childhood, which carries uh, some measure of pain for probably all of us, there's a lot you'd been stowing away. How at that point did you start to examine what was going on figure out how to take some steps and get started away from that precipice where you had considered just jumping out of it all. It it was interesting because in that moment, and I, and I think a lot about, you know, I spent, I spent a couple of weeks in a hospital Then I went home to the States and, you know, connected with my family. And then I, I came back to Singapore and, you know, tried to kind of return to my old life. And one of the things that was, because I, I think about this in relation to our work now, but I can remember, you know, knowing that I needed to go see a therapist. And in Asia, like we, the relationship, you know, therapy 
mental emotional health like is not something that is as prevalent as it is in western culture in the US right but i was very much of the you know my whole life it was like oh you if you if you feel sad or if you have anger or if you something's going on like go see a therapist so when i went back over to singapore i looked for a therapist and i couldn't find one and and in that moment it it really kind of shook me cuz i was like oh where's the resource where's the help that i need and they're just simply there weren't as many therapists. There weren't as many therapists that spoke English. There weren't as many therapists that really understood me as a man, both from a gender perspective, but also from a cultural perspective. And so I had to actually then explore and cultivate and, and look for different modalities. And so I, I went to you know various retreats, you know, personal growth work, uh, spirituality. Like I, I really explored it all, you know, and I sort of formulated my own toolbox for recovery and sort of repair, which seemed to have served me well until I moved back to the States eventually and, and moved to New York City. And, you know, moving to New York City at the age of 32, having just spent 10 years living overseas, like my entire 20s was spent basically just traveling all over the world into crazy countries and having just wildly different experiences than most of my peers. So when I moved to New York City at 32, as much as I felt like I was at home, so to say, because that was a very that was an that was a decision that I made. It was like I need to come home and be closer to my family and be more in Western culture. I still felt like a tremendous outsider because I just hadn't had any of the experiences that my peers and people that I was meeting had, I didn't know how to relate. Like, I don't know what it's like to be 27 years old or 28 years old in, you know, New York city or any like first job, like working for like a company, like I'd never done any of those things, you know? <laughs> and so that actually started this new chapter of like me wanting, trying, working really hard to fit in and doing all the things that I thought I should be doing to fit in. And then figuring out that like, okay, you actually don't enjoy fitting in. But yet, you know, I can remember like went to business school, then I like worked for a tech company, tech company got acquired. Uh, you know, I made some money, like, you know, had a girlfriend, you know, like doing all these like kind of normal things, but just being inside me knowing that like it wasn't making me happy. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't at all making me happy. And, and all the while, I'd stopped drinking for a number of years after my father passed away, but then I, I, to deal with that sort of integration in New York City, I started drinking again, started doing drugs, started, you know, taking advantage of the opportunities that, uh, to to disassociate that were put in front of me. Until the age of thirty-seven, when it just didn't work anymore. It was like, it was like, man, you've done all the things that people, you've done all the things that you've been told should make you happy and you're not, you're the furthest thing from that. <laughs> that was a real moment for me. Is that when what has, you know, what, what became every man, is that when you came to what that is as a co-founder and a leader in every man was when you were 37, did that come onto your horizon? Yeah. I mean, when, when I was 37 is when I, 
sort of took stock again and decided that I need to go and figure out what was going on with me. And so at 37, I really started to look at the last, you know, the last five years of my life and say like, what do I want to be doing? Um, and purpose was something that, that was, that really resonated me. Like the, the man for others, like I had become very selfish. I'd become very self-centered, focused on my own, what's good for me. And in, in that behavior, I hurt a lot of people and it was like a moment of getting back to, you know, that, that creed man for others. And it was almost like, I didn't necessarily go looking for it. I met Dan Doty, my co-founder randomly at a conference. He invited me to go to a retreat. I went to that retreat. I didn't have a lot of male friends when I was living, living in New York city. And, uh, I was in a room with 25 guys who all seemed pretty cool and were really nice to me and and like appreciated me in a way that I hadn't experienced before. And at the same time, I'd had my own experience and I was sort of watching the men around me in terms of where they were in their own journey, knowing that like I, like I was deeply impacted by their, I was deeply impacted by where they were on their journey of self-discovery, having been there myself. And seeing that, um, I, I, I was just like, I, I, I saw what was on the other side of that for them. And I was so excited about that. And I won, and I was drawn to the opportunity to contribute to that, that healing, to that growth, to that, you know, place that would make these, these guys that were in this room better men. Not to say that I was completed on that journey by any means. Um, and so sure. after that, after that weekend in December of 2016, I, you know, went to Dan and, and Sasha Lewis at the time and said, Hey, you know, I think the world, you know, needs more of this. You guys are doing some, you know, this is amazing. And I want to be part of this. I'd like to, you know, contribute, you know, and they said, okay. <laughs> and I mean, really the rest is history. I mean, if I, if I look at the, it's funny, just today we launched our, our every band membership. Um, and we spent a weekend together, myself, Dan and Sasha in January of 2016 or 2017, the weekend of the women's March prior to me too, prior to, you know, our current president prior to all of this. And we sat in a room, we said, Hey, what if we developed a platform or a way for men to support themselves, heal themselves, develop their emotional capacity, you know, improve their mental uh, wellness. Like what if we developed and built a platform and that enabled that to happen and, you know, offered membership and all these things. And what if we were in men's health and what if we, uh, you know, could impact a million men and all of these things. And three years later, I'm really proud of what we've done. And the, the journey has been a struggle I mean, it's taken to me to my knees in, in frustration and anger and, and sorrow. And it's taken me, you know, to the highest of highs in, in joy and pride. And it's kind of cliche to say, like, I wouldn't change a thing. I probably would actually change a few things. But in many ways, I think we're only just beginning. Like, I, I, I truly believe that we are only just beginning and 
the the experience that we're having now culturally, you know, and societally as it relates to COVID and it relates to, um, you know, really standing up to the, the, the issue of race, which in our country, I think we're entering a new chapter. And I think everything that we've been doing in every man has been, been preparing us for this new chapter because the people are hurting. Men are hurting the old paradigm of how we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to care for ourselves, you know, as it relates to our physical health, our mental health, our emotional health, you know, the notion that therapy is the only way for people to get help with their mental and emotional health. Like that paradigm is, uh, I, I think that's shifting faster than we, than we, than we can keep up with. And, and I'm, I hope there's more organizations like every man out there because the, the need and the problem is so great that I can't do it alone. We can't do it alone. I'd have to admit that the idea of my participating in a retreat, like what you described, you initially went to and what every man is about seems like an incredibly vulnerable and scary thing. And I'm guessing that an awful lot of guys go to those retreats thinking the same thing. What do you see in that? What do you say to guys who have that kind of uh, concern about opening themselves up, really being seen, really looking other guys in the eyes and opening their hearts during a weekend retreat? Um, I mean, a weekend retreat's only part of the experience. I mean, every man we have, you know, online programs. We have free drop-in groups that you can connect with online. Um, we obviously have retreats and trainings. Like, we have a lot of entry points and. You know what I would say to the guy is is this could change your life or it could save your life, but only you can decide if you're ready to go. So, you know, when you're ready, like here's the website. Like it's so funny because my fiance, like I, as you know, oftentimes like friends of hers or other you know women in my life, it's like, oh, can you talk to my my partner, my boyfriend, my husband, and get him to go? It's like I I actually can't, and I and I actually don't want to men men need to come to the conclusion of what they need on their own accord. If I'm pulling you or dragging you or whatever it is, you're not going to be committed. And I don't I don't I don't want that for you and I don't want that for the other individuals that will be there and participating because you won't be delivering on their expectation and that's not that's not, you know, that, that's not part of the agreement, you know? Right. Absolutely. I'm curious what you see in common, what you now from the experiences with all these other men through every man, if there's something in common that you see, whether that's being expressed, how the men express it, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what it might be. So do you see something that you feel like you're learning about men collectively who come to these, these things with every man to participate in whatever the format is. We are way more similar than we are different. Generally speaking, there's, there's three or four and, and I, and I don't want to generalize cause I want to honor every man's unique experience, but having, you know, participated and worked with and listened to, you know, thousands of men at this point, 
what I generally see is there's kind of a, um, there's like a, there's like five or six events that have the same name, but they may have different context or, or look different. You know, it's like, they're like, as men, we've all sort of experienced one, if not all of a set of events or an individualized event that has deeply impacted us. And I just see the same, I see a lot of pattern. I see a lot of things that have happened over and over and over again, which one, it, it tells me, wow, we're more similar than we are alike. And if we can relate to each other on those, you know, with that similar foundation, then it prepares, it, it gives us better opportunity to, to heal. It also tells me that like we can get, when you can start to look at patterns and figure out how you solve for those patterns and figure out how you can understand those, those instances and events better, then you can actually start to help more people at scale. I, I think about scale, you know, every man is a benefit corporation. So um, we are a for-profit social enterprise and we, we, we made that decision as an organization because we, our goal was not to impact the lives of 5,000 men or 10,000 men. Our goal is to, our first milestone is a million men. Like we haven't even started as an organization until we've reached a million men. And after we reach a million wow. men, then we've reached, then, you know, then we go to 10 million, then we go to a hundred million, right? And it's at that scale that you are shifting the culture that you are fixing in, you know, I don't want to say fix because we're not fixing, so to say, but you are fixing a systemic, we're not fixing individuals, but we are fixing a systemic problem that is impacting generations, right? And so we as a social enterprise said, hey, we need to have the rigor and the discipline of a for-profit company. Those are the, we need to have that incentive because this problem is so significant. You know, like Coca-Cola figured out how to get Coke to the most remote parts of, of Africa in the world. You know, I don't think Coca-Cola is necessarily a good, uh, it could, maybe it's not the right metaphor, but like there was an incentive for them to figure out the complexity of having to do that and reach as many people. Now, you know, my hope is we don't do that with sugar water, that we actually do that with, with love and, and the tools and the resources that people need to heal. Do you feel like now in the past three years with Everyman and where you are now, as you continue your own personal work? Do you feel like you are much healthier that emotionally and in every sense that you are, are you getting to what you want in your own life? Um, that's a great question. Um, I'm far from having it figured out. You know, I am unequivocally still on my own journey. I'm still, you know, healing my own wounds and, 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 shining, uh, you know, uh, a light on the, the dark shadows of who I am as a person. And it's hard, man. It's tough. Like it's, it's tough. It's tough doing this work. It's tough leading, uh, you know, this organization, you know, like I, I left a, 
a corporate career for various, you know, for, for multiple reasons to, to be in this, to be doing this full time. And it's taken a lot of sacrifice. Um, and there's moments when I do want to, when I've contemplated sort of giving up, but if I think about where I'm at right now, I just got engaged in November, you know, to a, a woman that is just so amazing and beautiful that like, I, I never could have imagined myself with somebody uh, that's as, as amazing as her. Like, I don't, I don't, I, I know those, I know that that wouldn't be part of my life if I hadn't sort of started on this journey at the same time. I, I think I am getting there. I mean, you asked me how I'm doing like in this very moment coming out of COVID, like I'm not doing that well. I can, and I was thinking, you know, meditating this morning and just thinking like, wow, like physically I don't feel as strong. Um, uh, you know, I feel fat. I'm, you know, I feel like my hair has been falling out. Like, you know, I feel, I can feel the, the rigor and the stress. Like when, when this, COVID hit, it wiped out all of our offline in-person events, which took away all of our revenue. You know, we had to lay off employees, you know, we've all gone without salaries, like, and for the last like 10 weeks, it's just wake up and push forward. And the motivation to push forward is that, is in then that like, wow, like this is when, like, I'll never forget, we did our first global call at the very beginning of COVID and there was 250 guys from all over the world. And it was just an experiment. I was like, who are these guys? Like I didn't even know them. (laughs) And that moment was like, it was, I felt so much pride and I was honored that they were there. And I also felt a great sense of responsibility and care to continue this work. And that's what's, that's, what's been motivating. But COVID and this whole thing, like, like it's impacted everybody else is, has been rough, man. <laughs> it's been rough. Yeah. And we have a lot going on beyond that right now, as of course, you know, and it's just, it's stacking up on everyone. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, and I think it's time, it's time. Like the, the, the way of being that got us here is not the way of being that's going to get us out of here. Things have to change. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to ask my final question for you, Lucas, and it's the same one that I ask everyone, every episode. It can be a summary of your thoughts. What we've talked about is a lot of human stuff, uh, trauma and resilience and amazing things in your life experience and what you're doing with every man. It's about the essence of humanness and creativity, which is what humanity is about. And so I'm wondering if we boil all of this down, all of this that you've shared, but also what you know to be your personal story and experience of humanness in this world. What is the common thread of what matters to you as a human who is clearly working to create and serve good for himself and the world? That's a great question. Uh, two things that come to mind, um, community and service. Like, I I think like it's cliche, but like, you know, 
there's a million things you can read out there that when somebody says, when somebody's on their deathbed, it's like, well, what didn't you do enough of? And it's, it's, it's not earn enough money. Not to say that's not a, 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 a worthwhile pursuit. We all have to live. But I think what I've come to find in my own life is that community is so important, like having shared sense of, of purpose and being and, you know, like, like really caring and caring about that community. I mean, my fiance and I, we made a very specific intention to, to move to a small town in upstate New York. You know, we, we know the people that are neighbors and we, you know, eat food from the farmers here and we, we march in the protests over the weekend with our, with our neighbors and, and, and it's a, it's a collective human experience and there, there's wealth in that wealth that, that is beyond financial wealth. And the other thing I'd say is just service. Service is this incredible gift that we've been given. Service heals us. When we make our life about others, the return comes back to us in, in a multiplying effect. And, and that doesn't mean everybody has to be Mother Teresa. But when we just slow down enough and think about, hey, what is the other, what can I do for the other person? It's, it's, it's game changing. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for all the work that you're doing with Everyman and for making time to talk with me for Humanity. I, I really appreciate getting to meet you this way, Lucas. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an honor, man. And, um, you know, we are all, in the words of Ram Dass, like we're all just walking each other home. You know, we're all on the same journey together. Um, look, maybe it looks different for other people, but we are unequivocally more similar than we are different. And I love what you're doing and I'm, I'm honored to be able to support it. That was my conversation with Lucas Crump, CEO and co-founder of Everyman in today's humanity conversation of humanness and creativity. You can learn more about Lucas in the show notes published on our website at humanity.com. It's said that we have the power to create the world that we wish to live in. That's part of why humanity exists. If you'd like to have more of the good stuff that Humanitude offers in the world, then I invite you to post reviews on Apple Podcasts and iTunes, Stitcher, and other players. And to share Humanity Podcast on your social media pages with family, with friends, because together we can cultivate this more thoughtful, kind, and creative world. If you have feedback on this conversation or the Humanity Podcast series overall, you can email me at adam at humanitude.com. Or reach me by Instagram DM at Humanitu. And so now, here we are at the question that I ask you after every episode. How are you living humanism and creativity in your life? I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of the Humanitu Podcast. Thanks for being here. Music